Heavenly Father, we know that as Christians, we've been born again. We've entered into a new life and a new love. Having walked in darkness, we now get to walk in the light. And having lived our lives estranged from you, we now get to walk it with you. And Lord, we know that the moment that we identify ourselves with you, we no longer identify with Satan. With you as our new friend, we also have a new enemy. But Heavenly Father, we're willing to take our chances with you. Lord, we know that you're going to make a provision for us and protect us. Lord, we know that you have your hand on that little dial, the thermostat of our life. And Lord, you know when to turn the heat up and you know when to put the pressure on. But Lord, in the end, we know that you have a plan for our life and that you're working and molding and shaping us to the very end that you have in mind to make us like Jesus. And so we pray these things in, in the name of David's son. In Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 19, it says, Now Samuel... Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant against David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his works have been very good toward you, for he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. And there was war again with the Philistines, and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was singing songs on Caleb. No. And David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. 
So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick! Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and set my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul. He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naot. Now it was told Saul, saying, take note, David is at Naot in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, and Samuel, standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramon, came to the great well that is at Seshu. So he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naot in Ramah. So he went there to Naot in Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naot in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? You know, someone once said to me, you Christians have to have a crutch. You have to believe in something. You, you don't have the courage to face life in reality. And that's why you have the crutch. And I said, you know, your hypocrisy is so obvious to me. You would be wrong to think that Jesus is a crutch. You see, Jesus isn't a crutch. He's a stretcher. If I have a crutch, that implies I have another crutch, that I'm leaning on something other than the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it, He's not a crutch. I am so crippled, I am so broken, I am so sinful, and I am so useless that, that all I can do is lay down in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and lay down in His mercy and lay down in His love because the only way that I'm going to be picked up is if He picks me up. You see, the hypocrisy of the people who complain to you, the hypocrisy is that everyone leans on something. Each and every person has a crutch. You see, your crutch is that which you find your security in. For some of you, the security might be your husband or your wife. 
Your security might be your children. Your security might be your savings. Your security might be the hope in, in, in that you've invested in your life. You have a savings account. You have health insurance. Am I saying it's wrong or sinful to have a savings account or, or, or health insurance? Of course I'm not saying that. It's wise and appropriate. But what are you trusting in? What is it that you're relying on? What is it that you're clinging to? It might be your family. It might be your job. And God help you if it's the government. Some of you have a crutch that you call your reputation. And others, it's some unique ability that you think that you have. But in the end, God wants us to rely upon Him. There is a God in heaven and He's calling you. And guess what? The truth is that when God calls you and changes you and transforms you, make no mistake about it, it's not unusual for Him to kick the crutches out from underneath you. The thing that you relied on. The thing that you leaned on. The Old Testament prophet Moses wrote, The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Some of you are old enough to remember the old song. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. No doubt we each experience times of doubt. No doubt. We sometimes prop ourselves up with a crutch. We want a substitute for the Lord or we want substance instead of the Lord. We want stimulation instead of the Lord. By the way, who is it or what is it that you count on in a crisis? Are you looking for a substitute to take the place of your Savior? Is your focus horizontal rather than vertical? Are you looking for anything that will offer you short-term relief to make the fear go away or make the pain go away or make the emptiness go away? It shouldn't surprise us that God is determined not to accept substitutes. David, in many ways, is a, a man of extraordinary character and faith. Remember, he's already killed a lion. He's already killed a bear. He's already killed a giant. He's faced times of challenge and he's faced times of crisis. But guess what? David's a human being, just like you are. And when he is in pain and when he is suffering, there were times in David's life when he looked for support. And those supports weren't always the Lord. There were times in his life where he didn't act rightly and he didn't act appropriately. And so God is determined to remove the supports that cause David to trust in things other than himself so that he'll have a deep and abiding confidence in the living Lord. And so the whole chapter has that overarching theme. The theme continues of Saul is trying to destroy David and God continues to protect David. Does this sound familiar to you at all? It could be the theme of your life. 
Satan is trying to destroy you. And God is determined to protect you. And in the course of Satan trying to destroy you, and God's determination to protect you, comes the challenge of persecution and protection. Look what it says in verse 1. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. The hypocrisy is now gone. The intimations are now gone. Saul has grown tired of trying to kill David through the Philistines because he sends the Philistines to he sends David to fight the Philistines and David keeps winning. And so Saul drops whatever pretense he has and now not only does he enlist his enemies to try and kill David, now he's soliciting his own family and friends to kill David. And so he'll put a contract out on David's life. Saul's affection turns from love to hate, from affirmation to and acceptance to anger and bitterness. And I'm sure that most of you have had an experience in your life where someone who admired you, where someone who said that they had affection for you, where someone who said that they were determined to be your friend and care for you, turned against you. Now, your crisis may not be so dramatic. They may not have put a contract out on your life. But an angry, bitter enemy still continues to exist. And it's committed to your destruction. The Bible describes this enemy as a roaring lion. And that he goes about seeking whom he may destroy. Now, have you ever been in a situation... Where through no fault of your own, there was anger and opposition directed towards you. Now, guess what? That's what's happening to David. Now, remember, remember, remember. David hasn't done anything wrong at this point. Is that going to be true of his whole life? No. There may be anger and opposition towards you. And let's just be a little bit honest here that you are accountable and responsible and that you participated in this strange circumstance that you faced. But that's not true for David here. David hasn't done anything to warrant the crisis. David hasn't done anything to invite the crisis. Have you ever prayed, Lord, why is this happening to me? I don't remember inviting this. I don't remember wanting this. And for David, God's at work in his life. Yeah, he didn't warrant this. He's actually obeyed the Lord. He's honored the Lord. He's ex exhibited courage under fire. But, it, but guess what? God is at work molding and shaping David because God has a plan for David. And part of God's plan includes putting a little bit of pressure on him because he's going to mold him. And shape him. And the 
next few chapters, in chapter 19, and chapter 20, and, and chapter 21, David is going to make a run for it. And as he makes a run for it, he's going to attempt to trust someone. He's going to attempt to trust someone other than the Lord. And each and every time, the crutch is going to be kicked out from underneath him. Jonathan is his friend, and Jonathan delights in David. Jonathan is going to face a challenge to defend David against his own father. But remember what I've told you. When you are a king, you get to do whatever you want to do, and Jonathan's life has already been at risk. Remember? Was Saul willing to sacrifice his own son in order to satisfy his own ego? But Jonathan's support will be a little bit easier and he'll cultivate his friendship with David that's the crisis and look at verse 2 it says so Jonathan tells David saying my father Saul seeks to kill you therefore please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide guess what now Saul is about to lose everything he has a powerful position in the court of Saul, but that's about to end. He has a very firm, focused friendship with his friend Jonathan, but that's also going to be put at risk. What do you do when the whole world turns against you? You know, it's easy to be a Christian when things are going good. I remember several years ago I was in a football stadium in Boulder, Colorado, and there were literally tens of thousands of men gathered in the stadium. And all across the stadium they were cheering at each other. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And a roar comes up from the other side of the stadium as they started chanting, We love Jesus. Yes, we do. If you're surrounded by 30 or 40,000 chanting Christians, it's pretty emboldening. But when your husband leaves you, when your wife leaves you, when the boss says today is the last day on the job, when you feel your world kicked out from under you, you're going to have to ask and answer the question, what am I going to do? Saul has declared open war on David. And he enlists his servants and his son in his plans to kill him. And in verse 3 it says, Jonathan says, I'm going to go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'm going to speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. And in verse 4 it says, So Jonathan spoke well of David to his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. In times of crisis, in times of pain, in times of persecution, it's great to have a friend. And that's exactly what Jonathan is. He advocates for his friend. And in verses 5 and 6 it says, For he took his life in his hands and he killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David for no good reason? Now, think about what's happened. Some of the people's love towards David has grown cold. 
Saul is the king. Saul is the man in charge. Saul gets to do whatever he wants to do. And remember what Saul is. He becomes a type and a picture of the flesh in the life of the believer. And that's exactly what sometimes your flesh will do. I have rights. I'm in charge. I get to make my decisions. And your flesh will begin to solicit your heart and your conscience and your will. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to read your Bible. Why pray? He's not listening anyway. And so you don't stop praying. You just pray less. You don't stop reading. You just read less. You don't stop going to church. You just go less. You don't stop hanging out with your Christian friends. You just hang out with them less. But Jonathan continues to retain his deep love and his deep friendship. Jonathan's love is deep and Jonathan's love is pure and Jonathan's love is strong. Remember what I said to you last week? That other than his relationship with the Lord, this relationship was the one relationship that David relied on throughout his career. And Jonathan's argument cools his father's temper. His, his father's hatred seems to abate for just a moment. Saul is willing to listen at least for now to his son. But make no mistake about it. Saul is willing to listen for a moment to his son. But I want to ask you a question. Do you think that this means that Saul is now ready, willing, and able to listen to, to the voice of God? We discover that that's not true. Saul will refuse to still hear from God. In verse 6 it says, so Saul heeds the voice of Jonathan. I guess here's what we could say. For now. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Now you may not have such a dramatic moment in your life. But there may come a time when you're called to intercede for a friend. Someone says something and you go, you know, that's not true. Someone maligns or or says something that is so patently false or, or so patently absurd. And you just sit there and you just listen. And you just take it. Saul is willing to swear by the living God that David will not be killed. But Saul refuses to open his heart to the searching light of God's presence. And there's something still inside of his heart. It's a demon. The demon is there. The demon is waiting. And the demon is lurking. And the demon is lingering. There are a lot of people who will swear by God, but they have absolutely no intention of keeping their promise. Have you ever met someone who said, I swear to God. I swear to God. I'm telling you the truth. I swear to God. And in a moment of clarity, you say, which God? tell me again which God you're swearing by. Is this the God of your own evil imagination? Or is this the God of some evil fabrication? Or is this the, the God who's in the Bible? The eternal, self-existent God. The God who knows and understands everything and who sees everything. Is that the God that you're swearing by? 
The mind of the flesh, the Bible says, is at odds with the mind of the Spirit. Remember what it says in the New Testament? The flesh wars against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. That they're constantly fighting with one another. And here's what we've discovered. That the flesh wars against the Spirit. And the Bible also teaches us that the mind of the flesh is at constant odds with the Spirit of God. They're contrary to one another. And they refuse to submit to one another another. The flesh may for a season, but it's constantly at odds. People want religion and people want church and people want morals, but they reject relationship and sweet fellowship with the Lord. And Saul still retains the language, but he's not going to keep his promise. There was a very famous man named General William Booth. Some of you know that name because he's the founder of the Salvation Army. He was a man who watched the plight of poor people in, in pre-Civil War. You know, this is in England, so that it wasn't necessarily in their Civil War. But in, in the 80s, 1840s and the 1850s, he began to tell people about the Lord. And, and, and a great revival emerged. But, but he wrote about his thoughts about what could happen in the upcoming century. He wrote about religion without the Holy Spirit. He wrote about Christianity without Christ. He wrote about forgiveness without regeneration. He wrote about morality without God. And he, he wrote about people who believed in heaven without hell. In other words, they would begin to fabricate and make up their own religion. And they would make up their own thoughts and ideas about who God is and, and what God is and what it meant to be a Christian. But guess what? The Bible doesn't speak of real relationship with God apart from the Holy Spirit. And you can't have Christianity without Christ. And there is no forgiveness without regeneration. You know, I know people who think that if they wear the best clothes that they own and go to church, they've observed the Sabbath. I wore my best clothes and I walked through the door. I was shocked that the, that the roof didn't cave in on me. Saul, like the flesh, is willing to say what needs to be said in order to further his own agenda. But in verse 7, look what it says. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all of these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. Dodged a bullet. His position is restored. He gets to bring his harp back to the court. David will fight with the Philistines again. Look what it says in verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and he fought with the Philistines. And he struck them with a mighty blow. And they fled from him. Remember what we have learned earlier? Is the Holy Spirit with David? Is the power of God present in David's life? Has God anointed and appointed David to be a champion to get rid of the enemies of Israel? Yeah. How do you think Saul feels about all that? The pressure, the madness, the anger, the bitterness wells up inside of him once again. And in verse 8 it says, there was war 
David's success stirs up the demon inside of Saul. And look what it says in verse 9. Now, the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing music with his hand. Isn't that funny? The distressing spirit. For some people, they read verse 9 and they get completely upset. What do you mean the distressing spirit from the Lord? Yeah, it's true. God will allow certain people to experience the consequences of their own bad choices. God will allow certain people who in rebellion and disobedience against God mock God, defy God, rebel against God. And and it just so happens that here is David back in his place with his harp playing the songs on the radio that all of you have come to love. It's interesting to me how worship music and how praise music will bring comfort to the Christian and it will agitate the unbeliever. Why do, you have to, why do you have to listen to that Jesus music all the time? Well, honey, I, you know, I know that, uh, that the foul language and the rap of, the, of this current culture, and I know that for some reason drug dealing and being imprisoned and killing your enemies and shooting them down with tech nines and abusing women, I know that that seems to be popular in our culture, but... I find it a little bit more comfortable to just praise the Lord. You're such a weirdo. Okay. The demon comes upon Saul. Oh, by the way, does Jonathan's pep talk make Saul's hatred for David to go away forever? The answer is no. We can see it. So Saul decides that he's going to play pin the David to the wall. And Saul releases his javelin right when David begins to play, you know, praise him in the open skies. Everyone singing praise the Lord. And all of a sudden he hears this. And there is a javelin stuck right next to his head. And David realizes something. that probably any hope for reconciliation is about to disappear. In verse 10 it says, Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he slipped away from Saul's presence. And he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. By the way, where do you go from here? Do we get a restraining order against Saul? Is there some court that you can go to? What do you suppose David's chances are of reconciling with his father-in-law? Remember what it says in the New Testament? So far as it's possible, live at peace with all human beings. But Saul has made it impossible. Because David is about to take an advanced class in God's school of prayer and obedience and suffering. 
you know what? Most people that I've met don't want to go to that school. They don't want to go to the school of dependence upon the Lord. But David has to go a different way. God has chosen a different path for David. God has chosen a path of separation. And I want to ask you a question. Doesn't that seem very much like David's future famous son, Jesus? Is Jesus going to go a different way? Has, is Jesus going to be on a path of separation? Is Jesus going to go in a way that is different from the world and different from the world's expectations. And remember what you've done. You've identified yourself as a follower of Jesus. You've identified yourself as Christ's disciple and Christ's follower. And now you're torn between walking a path that is the expected path, but God's calling you to go in a different direction. He's calling you to a life of not wickedness, but holiness. Not uh, selfishness, but selflessness. God's calling you. The Holy Spirit is present in your life and He's, He's gifted you. Your life isn't your own. You've been bought with, with a price. And so David becomes homeless. David is thrown out of his own home. Later, he'll be a stranger and despised and rejected. Does that sound familiar to you? The father whose son will be despised and rejected. A place, he doesn't have a place to call his own. He has no place to lay his head. David is about to travel the road of rejection and sorrow and shame. And it's a road that his son will follow. In verse 11 it says, So Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. So he leaves the court and he goes home and he goes to his wife. And it says in verse 11, And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you're going to be killed. He goes home, but even in his own home, there's no place safe from Saul's fierce anger. And do you remember in the earlier chapter, Saul said, I'm going to allow David to marry my daughter and she will be a snare to him. What? Why would God allow me to marry a woman or why would God allow me to marry a man who would be a snare to me? Hey, you know what? Sometimes you will find yourself in circumstances that God's plan and pressure is to bring about not so much a change in your partner's life, but a change in your life. God gave David a home and Saul made David's home a prison. You'll remember in the New Testament, Peter spent the night in jail in Jerusalem. Herod had the same idea as Saul to kill him. Herod would make the voices go away because these guys kept preaching the gospel. Peter is going to go to sleep. He's going to be awakened and sprung by an angel. David's not going to go to sleep. Because when David has run away from the court of Saul, 
guess what he took with him? His trusty Hebrew guitar. That's right, the harp. David has brought his harp home. He wrote about this experience. Did you know that? As a matter of fact, for those of you who have a Bible, you might just want to turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 59. In Psalms, chapter 59, the title reads, The Help of the Helpless. Look what it says at the top of Psalm 59. To the chief musician set to... Do not destroy a victim of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. <gasps> David actually wrote a song about this experience that we're reading about in 1 Samuel chapter 19. You know, remember Johnny Cash when he wrote his song? You know, well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much to on me, just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. And I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Now, you know that you, you remember the song, and, and as the song unfolds, it, it shapes the character that is being talked about. And the same is true in Psalm chapter 59. Some, the mictum means a golden psalm of David when Saul sat and went and watched the house to kill him. Now, this is the house. They're there to kill David. This is what he's writing. This is what he's thinking. Now think about it. He's inside the house. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And save me from bloodthirsty men. They're there and they're there to kill him. The house is surrounded. And sometimes your house gets surrounded. The, the doubt is there. And the depression is there. And the despair is there. And doubt and despair and depression have circled the wagons around your circumstances. And they threaten to break the door down. The psalm begins with a cry for deliverance in verses 1 and 2. And then there's this vivid picture of foes that gather against him in verses 3 through 5. Look what it says. For they look, they lie and wait for my life. They, the mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O oh Lord. I didn't do anything wrong. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold, you therefore, for, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any of the wicked transgressors. At evening they return. Listen, listen, listen. They growl. Like a dog. And go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. See, it's not just your 12-year-old. It's in the Bible. I know it doesn't say belch the alphabet. Swords are in their lips for they say, who hears? L listen, the he here's the picture. Saul has placed his sentinels 
And so in verses three through five, when it says awake to help me and behold, he says he's he's placed guards all around the, the place. And David calls out for help. He pictures his foes as they assemble the house like like hungry scavenger dogs in the east. In muttered tones, they whisper to one another who hears who hears. Do you know what it says in the original language? Have you ever been out in the middle of the night in the darkest of the dark circumstances and you hear a snap? Who's that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? What do you suppose that was? The night has fallen. The darkness is intense. David contrasts the skulking murderers and their supposed secrecy to the God who gazes from heaven. I've had the privilege of being at the FBI earlier this week. And the FBI, when they want to know something, they have extraordinary resources in order to find out. There's a God in heaven. And there's a supernatural surveillance that's taking place right above you. When it's light, when it's dark, the cameras of heaven are rolling, the microphones of heaven are turned up, and the microphones record not only your conversation, but the silent conversation that's inside of your heart that no one hears except for God. David says, scatter them by your power. He begins to pray, bring them down, O Lord, my shield. In verses 11 through 13, the disappointed pack is seen in verses 14 and 15, growling in vain. And as their prey is just beyond their reach. They return at evening. They growl like a dog and compass the city. They prowl about for food since they're not satisfied. They spend the night in search. What do you suppose they're searching for? They're looking for David. And like hungry dogs, they see David as their kibble and bits. Hey, we're going to have some David tonight. But guess what? Guess how David ends the psalm. He ends the psalm with praise to his God. Do not let let them do not slay them lest my people forget. And you go down in verse twelve for the sin of their mouths and their words of their lips. Let let them even be taken in their pride. And you go all the way down to verse fifteen. They wander up and down for food and how if they're not satisfied. But look what David does. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you've been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense. My God of mercy. Do you know what David is proving? That the harp is mightier than the sword. The harp of David is mightier than Saul's spear. Praise is more powerful than the assassins that roam the night. You're surrounded by doubt and you're surrounded by despair and you're surrounded by debt. And it 
presses and presses and threatens not just to hurt you, but to kill you and to destroy you. And you begin to sing, He is my rock. He is my fortress. He is my deliverer. In Him will I trust. And in verse 12 it says, So Michael let David down through the window. And he went. And he fled. And he escaped. In the same way that the spies in Rahab's care escaped the king of Jericho, Paul escapes the angry mob in Damascus. David escapes. Isn't that kind of interesting? Spies escape through a window. Paul escapes through a window. David escapes through a window. By the way, is it kind of humiliating in the middle of the night to crawl through your own window in order to escape from an angry mob of people who are trying to kill you? Do you think it damages your pride a little bit? Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, I can't do this. This is beneath me. This is below my dignity. Yeah. It wounds your pride when you have to run for your life. You mean God would be willing to wound my pride? Hurt my pride? Expose my pride? Humble me? Look what it says in verse 13. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick! Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in bed. Here's, here's the conversation. The guys come in, they see Michael, and they go, Look, he's sick. And the, the text implies that he's so sick that he's going to probably die. And so they say, Look, he's as good as dead anyway. And, they, and Saul says, Bring his rotting body to me so that I can kill him myself. And when the messengers have come in, uh-oh, here's the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Now, why in the world does Michael have an image? Let's just do the math here. Let's pause for a moment and ask this question. Is David a Hebrew? Yes. If you are a Jew and an observant Jew, are you supposed to have images in your house? Then if it's an image big enough to lay in the bed and pretend to be David, is it a fairly large image? And do you think that the image is just there for decor? And I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I'm going to come back to this in just a moment. In verse 17 it says, Then Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul and he said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? In other words, she lies. She says, Dad, he threatened to kill me, Dad. Is that true? No. So Michael loves David. Michael loves David and saves his life, but she doesn't follow her husband on the path of rejection. And that's the difference. 
she fails to say to her husband what Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Your God will become my God. And it could very well be that perhaps Michael had, had brought the statue into her home to supplement her worship of God. Well, we have a statue, but, you know, we really do believe in the God of Israel. And this statue is just sort of to help me visualize what God must really be like. I'm going to suggest something to you. She may have kept this statue secret from her husband. But now she brings the statue out openly. She meant to shield David by her deception. But even as she's trying to protect David by her deception, she is in effect ensnaring herself in order to turn her father's wrath away from herself. She's willing to lie about her, her, her husband to her father in order to protect herself. And by the way, that's never a good idea. It's never a good idea to lie about yourself. Or to lie in order to protect yourself. We follow Jesus. It's a privilege to follow Jesus. And in our homes, we sometimes have things that we think are important. And we keep them inside of our homes, even while people on the outside are seeking to get in on the inside she deceives her husband, but in the end she refuses to follow her husband. And that's the key difference. And look in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 18, it says, So David fled and escaped. Now he really has no job and he has no home. And so where does he go? He went to Samuel and Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Saul went. Or he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoh. Think about what's happening. David is running for his life. Doesn't have a job. Doesn't have a home. It makes perfect sense to find friendship and fellowship and, and companionship and like-minded people. Is Samuel a prophet? Question. Does Samuel love the Lord? Answer is yes. Does Samuel serve the Lord? Yes. Is he a true prophet of God? Yes. Has Samuel chosen the path of separation? Yes. Has he paid dearly for confronting Saul concerning his own wickedness? The answer is yes. Jonathan, his friend, devoted and committed, is still with his father Saul. Michael, loving and loyal, is still in David's home with an image, an idol. But Samuel, separated, is waiting on the outside for David to receive David. And the text says, David told Samuel all that Saul had done to him. And I'm certain that David's tale of woe was heard by a receptive ear. And I'm sure that the prophet was sympathetic. And I'm sure that the prophet was kind. And I'm sure that Samuel knew that the school that David was about to enter, the school of suffering, 
the school of rejection, the school of sorrow. Samuel understood about that. And remember, Samuel loved Saul and he wept over Saul and he's the one who anointed David to be the king. But this is where David goes when he's persecuted. He runs to the place where there's friendship and fellowship. Remember, Jesus found such a place when he was seeking shelter from the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. Remember in the New Testament that right before he died, he found some sustenance and strength in the the town called Bethany in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus because he knew that there there would be friendship and there would be fellowship and there would be relationship and there would be companionship. And in verse 19 it says, Now it was told, Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Naot in Ramah. And in verse 20 it says, Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as the leader over them, the Spirit of God, this is the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Can you imagine? We're here to arrest David. And take him back to Saul. But there's a revival that takes place. And the messengers, they experience the presence of God. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Look at what it says in verse 21. And when Saul was told, he sent more messengers. And they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they prophesied also. Now think about this for just a moment. Three times Saul sends messengers to apprehend David. Three times the messengers are apprehended by the Holy Spirit. We're here for David. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm here for you. This is what happens in the circle of the prophets. This is the place where people are telling the truth. See, you probably never thought about the power and the and the presence of the Holy Spirit as being your protector. But David's life is in God's hand, really. And David will be allowed only where God allows him to go. And and people will be restrained according to the plan and the purpose of God. And guess what? Even though you may not want to admit it, and even though you may not even believe it yourself, There is a God, and He's watching over you, planning, purposing, orchestrating. The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit overwhelms the messengers. This is great. It's the Holy Spirit who's running interference. And by the way, what happens when the Holy Spirit runs interference? Is there anything that can touch you? Or get to you? In verse 22 it says, Then he also went to Ramon. He came to the great well that is at at Seishu. So he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they're at Naot in Ramah. That's that's where the revival is happening. And in verse 23, So he went there to Naot in Ramah. And then the Spirit of God was upon him also. 
And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah in verse 24. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner. And he lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? And you're probably reading this going, what is happening? How do we think about what we just read? Question. Is it possible for unbelievers to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, the answer is yes. Can the Holy Spirit act on believer and unbeliever alike, allowing or prohibiting? Can the Holy Spirit say to a judge, every molecule in my body wants to say guilty? Not guilty. Where did that come from? Is it possible for the Holy Spirit, when a police officer is saying, I'm going to take you in, you're under arrest, and I'm going to take you to jail, and, the, and every molecule in the police officer's body wants to say, you're under arrest, and I'm taking you to jail, and he goes, I'm letting you off with a warning. What? Where did that come from? Saul himself has come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, you need to understand something. This is not the power of grace working in his heart and producing the fruit of righteousness, but this is the power of God, the irresistible power of God, bending a stubborn, rebellious, wicked man to conform to the all-powerful influence of the true and the living God. I'm the king. I know you think you. There's another king and he lives in heaven. Well, I get to say what goes on. I know you may think you think you get to say what goes on. But guess what's happening? Look at him. Look at Saul on the floor. Look at this guy. There he is, writhing on the floor. Guess what he's thrown? Now, when it says he's naked, what do you suppose that means? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, should we really go there? But I'm going to help you, okay? What kind of robe does a king wear? It's the robe of his office. Let me just help you with this. A judge, what kind of a robe does a judge wear? Judge's robe. You've probably heard the expression, dress for the job that you want. Saul is the king. And the king has taken off the king's clothes. He thinks that he gets to be the king. But the power of the Holy Spirit causes him to strip what symbols he has of his own authority. And there he falls and lies there day and night. And it's a fitting picture of a person who's filled with pride and self-glory. Do you remember the scripture in Philippians where it says that there will come a day when every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that, who knows the rest of it, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you suspect that every knee that is bowing is doing so voluntarily? There is a power 
that God possesses where people must stand or they must kneel or they must bow. David sees the hand of God at work in the life of his enemy. And it's the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. When the persecution comes and the protection is needed, David steps into the circle where the prophets speak the word of God. David steps into the circle where the power of God is manifested. And David steps into a circle that even his most determined enemy is incapable of doing anything other than what God wants him to do. I think you know the Lord wants to reign in your life in a singular fashion. The Lord wants to reign in your life without a single rival, without a single substitute. Because guess what? There's only one person big enough to occupy the throne of your heart. You might think it's your pride. You might have an exaggerated and an inflated sense of your own circumstances. But this throne was meant to be occupied by the Lord Jesus Christ. Give God the glory. Give Him the praise and give Him the attention. Jesus isn't a crutch. He's a stretcher. You need to lie down and rest comfortably in His perfect plan. By the way, one of the most painful events that can take place in the life of a person is to have those crutches stripped away. I heard the story of, of a guy who was at a revival. And he goes, Did you go to the revival today? Yeah, I went. Did you see me when I went forward? Yeah, I saw you. Did you hear what the preacher said? Throw away your right crutch, and I did. Throw away your left crutch, and I did. And then what happened? I fell completely on my face. I'm a cripple. I know. Wait, I thought the story was going to end differently. You see, you might be living under the illusion that your disability, your suffering, your circumstances is not what God wants. But what if it's exactly what God wants? Because the most pernicious and wicked thing that is in your life isn't a disability. But it's the disability called pride, selfishness, self-determination. Guess what? The crutches are going to disappear from David. One by one by one until the only thing that David has in his broken and empty life is absolute dependence upon the true and the living Lord. It's a journey. And the journey is just beginning. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know, I know, I know that discipline is rarely easy. And Lord, we do depend upon so much, so often. But Lord, if we have sinfully substituted our dependence upon things or our dependence upon people, Lord, we thank God for friendship. And we thank God for fellowship. But Lord, we know that there's no substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. And that there is no substitute for protection than the ever-present help of God. David wrote, He is my rock. He is my fortress. In Him I will trust. Lord, I pray that that would be our prayer. You are my rock. You are my fortress. And we look to You. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.